Hi, Bouncers. Welcome to part two of our interview with Jeffrey Miller. Check out last week's episode, Gangnam Cowboy, to listen to part one. In this episode, Melanie needed to sign off, so it gave Jeffrey and me an opportunity to continue our conversation on his experiences living and teaching in Korea. As mentioned in the previous episode, Jeffrey and I are second cousins, so we also do a little reminiscing about our family and growing up in an area of central Illinois called the Illinois River Valley. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Let's keep in touch, let's keep in touch, keep in touch with me. Drop me a line any old time. Okay, Amy, what do you got? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I was, I'm glad you brought up your children and I was going to ask about sort of your your family's experience over the past year. And, you know, you, obviously, like you said, you've been through difficult times before, but now when there's family involved, right, 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 it's just right. a different situation. So I just wanted to hear a little bit about um, kind of what you guys have experienced and where you think you're at today, I think culturally. And if you, you know, if you see things changing or if you think, no, we're probably going to be like this for quite a while. Mass. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, segregated. the school year begins uh, next Tuesday. The, 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 the semester begins, and of course, for elementary schools and middle schools. And so far, it looks like the kids will be meeting in the classrooms for the first time. I'm not, I mean, this could change. Uh, I haven't, because usually I get messages from the schools, but I haven't really uh, heard anything. I do have this, I do have to report every day my, my children's health, at least my daughter's health to uh, to the regional office here saying that they have no fever and things like that. But I don't know about if, if we're going to actually be having, if they're going to actually be attending classes. I know last year uh, they were sort of staggering the classes, like they'd go for three days and they would mm -hmm. be online or, or, you know, whatever. My kids, they're, they're, I mean, it's not good for them because they, they're not, you know, they're, they're missing out on a lot of things. And they're missing out, first of all, like on socializing. They're missing out like on a, on, a, on a regime, sort of a routine. You know, kids need routines. Kids need to get up at eight o'clock. They need to get, you know, eat breakfast, brush their teeth, go to school. They need to be in classes. And I know I'm, it sounds rather draconian, right, to say you got to have a military regime. <laughs> no. <laughs> but kids need that. Yeah. Kids need they need some kind of order in their lives. And when you take away that order, then they fill it in with stuff that is not ordered. And they start spending too much time on their telephones. They start sleeping later. They're not eating. You know, they're getting up and they're not eating at a proper time. They're waiting a little bit longer. So I found that my kids were becoming sluggish, becoming sort of not really sort of receptive to things. Now, my daughter, on the other hand, she was going to school a lot because they had a special daycare program for kids in the first and second grade. But toward the end, she was getting really hostile because she was asking me, why don't my brothers have the same thing? Why is it only me? You know, and I'm thinking, well, I want you to do this because I don't want you to end up like your brothers. But she began to sort of begin to fight me with that because she, you know, but she loved it. I mean, it, once she got there, she loved it. But I hope we don't have to do that. I, and I hope the kids can, you know, 
the, the saddest thing was that I, I walk my daughter to school every day. It's not too far from where I live. And, you know, when, when my boys started elementary school, I would walk them every day to school and I would take them to their classroom and then I'd say goodbye to them. And then I'd pick them up. Okay. But for my daughter, I never got to see my daughter's classroom. Mm. I never got to see where she sat, you know, and to me, I mean, I don't know if other parents feel that way, but that's important to me. I, because I, I want to show my daughter, my kids that I'm really genuinely interested what they're doing at school because I care about that. And, you know, oh, you know, whether they did some, uh, some artwork or something, or this is your desk, this is where you sit, all this, you know, I, I need that, you know, as a parent, I want to show the kids that, that I value whatever they're doing. And I didn't have that chance. And I, I you know, because, you know, because we, we couldn't go in the building, we're not when we weren't allowed in the building. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's interesting when you, you know, described the seeing your children kind of go through this evolution of just struggling more to get up and being more in a cocoon on their phone and it's so it's one of those things I as an adult I've experienced that and we know that the you know sheltering in place and having such limited connectivity with other humans has really caused unprecedented like depression in adults and things like that but I haven't really thought about with for for kids that yeah it's kind of the same thing they're not getting some of the interaction that they need they're not getting interaction they like adults they're they struggling they can't play that you know um oh, yeah. but my daughter was kind of lucky because she this the school i mean each school is different you know they have their own sort of uh systems you know in place for 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 dealing with these classes in the midst of the pandemic so i think she was better off than her brother's I'm happy for her, um, and I hope that things are are better this this semester. For my kids, yeah, it's it's been been a, a really weird year for them. Uh, I mean, they're really good about it, you know. They they no. you know, the wearing the masks and all that, but yeah. but still, uh, but still, I I feel that I feel you know bad for them because they they don't get the kind of the experience that I had, and of course, they're dealing, I mean, they're dealing with using Korean, you know, they're not speaking English, they go, they go to Korean school. So they're dealing with a lot of things that, that I don't have to deal with. I mean, I, I have it easy compared to that. I know, I, I'm worried that there's a whole generation of, of children who aren't going to, who are going to grow up and not really be able to understand facial expressions very well, because right. of only ever seeing eyes and forehead. And well, my daughter the other day, she said that she wishes she could wear the mask all the time mm-hmm. because they, they, they're, they're getting to the point where they, they don't have to worry about smiling and doing things like that. So yeah, but you, I agree. I think there will be people growing up where they, they you know, because we use eye contact, you know, in our facial expressions, smiling, things like that. Uh, you don't know if somebody's smiling or if they're frowning, you know, so you, huh. you just assume everybody is just, neutral with their emotions <laughs> so um yeah i worry about my kids a lot you know and I, i'm worried that they're missing out on things i mean you know trying to tell them you know make sure you wash your hands make sure you do this uh much more i think difficult what i call it parenting in time of pandemic because parents have to do a lot of things they have to be more sort of sort of cognizant of what their kids are doing 
and making sure like, did you wash your hands? I mean, you know, and just, but on the other hand, I mean, no one has had any colds the past year. You know, they, all the kids got their flu shots back in November and no one's been sick, knock on wood, right? But I think there is some kind of silver lining in all this is that the kids tend to be a little bit healthier, uh, but they're not getting the exercise that they should be, the running around. They're not getting, they're not being with people their age a lot in school. Uh, they're not having to experience things. I mean, and I think teachers are, are a little bit more caring, you know, so maybe they're kind of getting away with things that they wouldn't normally get away with because there was, oh, it's a pandemic, oh, you know. Um, I noticed that my students, my students, they, they tend to complain more when they get a low grade mm -hmm. and they keep on saying stuff like, I'll lose my scholarship if I don't get an A in this class, or I don't, I'll lose my scholarship if I don't get an A plus. And I'm thinking, hey, you know, I write, I write back to them and I say, hey, don't put it on me. You've got five other classes. But their argument is they say, well, it's a pandemic. You know, you, you have to understand, you know. So a lot of people are kind of using that as a crutch when, they, when they're not doing well in the class. Yeah. You know, and I'm saying that, hey, you know, you don't have to get up in the morning. You don't have to get dressed. You just wait, you, know, you get up, you put on the camera, you take the class. Don't say you can't do the assignments because you don't have to travel anywhere. You, you're right at home. The first semester last spring, you know, we have what we call grade appeals. I had like 25 grade appeals. And I would say more than half were students who said, I'll lose my scholarship. And of those students who said that, there were a couple students who actually, who said, who actually complained to the office and said, there's a pandemic, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, whoa, well, wait a minute. You know, it's like, you got the score. You, you got the grade. You know, I didn't give you the B. You got the B, okay? <laughs> you earned that B. That is yours. It's not me saying, I'm going to give you a B. I'm going to give you a C. It doesn't work that way in, in teaching, you know? Kids don't often realize that their teachers yeah. don't fail them. They fail themselves. But they kind of were using the pandemic as sort of, that was their, their rationale. And, well, you know, of course. Oh, so sorry. One of no, the things that has come up when we've talked to a few other teachers who are teaching at international schools is this challenge of some of their students are stuck in their home country and not actually present, but yet they're still either paying for the tuition yeah. or scholarship that's cost. Right. And that, that that's something that we haven't quite figured out how to balance out right, right. over this you know year. And I, I agree. I, I think that um, one of the things that, that students are complaining about is that why should they have to pay exorbitant tuition and fees when they're not in school? And we had a bit of a, uh, sort of a problem here. Some students did not like having to pay like student council fees and thinking that, well, we can't take the trips, we can't do the things, so why are we paying the fees? And of course, schools, they always kind of figure the fees in as part of their budget, as part of their sort of their, you know, their intake for students, and they use that money for other things, which may actually go back to some students, but not all students, kind of like, you know, extracurricular activities, they're really up for the students. Some students don't want to go on the trip. Some students don't want to do this. 
And of course, the fees that you pay underwrite, they kind of like sort of, you know, take care of some of those things. So students were complaining about that and, you know, making a, a pretty big stink about it on Facebook and other places, okay. and which actually got sort of the attention of the powers that be at my school. And they kind of had a, had a bit of a powwow session, you know, and kind of sort things out. But that, that's a problem, you know, and the, but the big thing is that in South Korea now, is that it's kind of ironic is that a couple of years ago, everybody, people were talking about 2020. Now, 2020 was a big date in South Korea. And that was the date that was going to be the year that there would be a significant decrease in college enrollment because of the declining birth rate. In the 1990s, it was not uncommon for me to teach students who had two or three family, uh, two or three siblings. But as we moved along, suddenly families are only having one child. And suddenly schools started seeing fewer and fewer students in elementary school and middle school and high school. And then, of course, 2020 was going to be the year that this would be the first major decrease in enrollment. So my school they began to sort of look, okay, say like 20, about, about 10 or 15 years ago, they began thinking, you know, overseas, we need to start looking outside of Korea to bring in students because we're not gonna have as many Korean students. And what's happened to schools in South Korea now, schools who really depended upon that foreign intake are finding themselves in financial difficulties. Yeah. And we've already had to take, for example, we were told that uh, we get an annual bonus that starting next year, it will be reduced, that it's possible that housing will not be available for teachers from, from next year, which is like, if you've got a family, you're screwed. Yeah. Because, I mean, housing, housing has always been one of the cornerstones of bringing in foreign teachers, foreign faculty, airfare, housing, because in South Korea, housing is very expensive. You can pay 50, 60 million won to get an apartment. It's like basically you're buying an apartment. You know, if you're here and you don't sock away 50 or 70 million won, you're not going to have a place to live. And schools are cutting back on a lot of programs. They're cutting back, hiring. They're not, you know, in many ways, it, 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 it could actually, in some ways, have a positive spin. In 1997, there were a lot of illegal teachers coming to Korea. There were a lot of people making big money teaching private classes. They were coming here and they were teaching everywhere. There was an article in the Washington Post back in March of 1997, where teachers were interviewed and they said, yeah, I bought a a, a Jeep Grand Cherokee with cash from the money I made teaching privately in South Korea. This freaked out mm. South Koreans. And they began to sort of look for this legal teaching while well, the Asian financial crisis came. It cleaned the pond. Anybody who was here illegally, anybody was, wasn't a good program who was doing the hogwan teaching, they left. Okay, so, what's the term uh, hogwan? Hogwan is an English institute. That's oh, okay. Korean. And they, Hogwan can be for math. It's like academy. It could be like mathematics, could be English, could be piano or things like that. Your Hogwan teaching is pretty much language teaching. We went in 19, 
1997, the exchange rate was 823 won to the dollar in October of 97. The day after Christmas, it was 2,000 won to the dollar. So basically your salary, if you were making $1,000 a month, your salaries were cut in half. I mean, if you're, if you're transferring money, okay, if you're within the economy, it was no problem. So it cleaned the pool, basically. But then things started coming back gradually. There's, there's a lot of teachers here. So there, there's a, a pretty big, sizable pool of teachers here. And what I'm thinking is going to happen is that a lot of teachers are just not going to renew their contracts. Uh, we might see more job openings down the road, uh, but also I'm, I, as I look on you know, like Dave's ESL cafe, you know, for teaching jobs here, I do see that the salaries are, are pretty low. I, I'll tell you, when I came to Korea in 1990, my salary was 1.1 million won a month. That would have been roughly speaking about $1,200 a month, $1990. But I see jobs now, they want to pay like only 2.5 million a month, which is about $2,000, which in my, I mean, that's kind of poverty level, I mean, to teach. Yeah, that's only $24,000 a year. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, it's, 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 it's expensive here. It's, it's, it's uh, tough. It's been interesting talking with teachers and talking with Melanie and we talked about this equity challenge that we know all teachers have, but you know, English teachers or ESL teachers, it's like, it's, it's not the same problem as we have with public school teachers or private. Right, right, right. It's different, but there is something that I can't put my finger on with uh, English teachers where we almost don't feel like we're we have the right to ask for more or we just know that we're not going to get more if we ask for it or that that kind of challenge of feeling like well this is only how much I'm, my job is valued at so right. i can't really try to push to get more and we used, it, we used to get more raises in the past i mean um yeah i think they they gave you some like a like a cost of living adjustment but the cost of living has gone up significantly mm-hmm. in that time. Mm-hmm. We had a big, this is, goes back to 2006. We had a big meeting, you know, and we were told we were making too much money and, you know, and they just wanted to cut, you know, cut the poor. Especially That's how a lot of teachers feel like. They just they feel just, like they're always the ones having to make a sacrifice. It's hard to see the overall economics of a company because it's so hidden and you don't really know what, the administration and the executives are making. And that's a real challenge. One of the things that we want to do is get a a handle on why is it always the teachers who feel like they're taking the hit? I don't know. People, what people would say too, is like, well, Hey, you got into this profession. You know, you have to, you know, that's it. I mean, you, you knew this getting into it. Right. So they, they kind of, there's also that kind of mindset. Yeah. yeah, and that that anyone can do it. Mentality. Right, that's something we really want to change. Yeah, I I agree, and I I think too is that they don't see English teach, and I think language teachers in general, they don't really see us as as really having anything that's meaningful. Everything's always sort of like sort of the content courses, you know, things of that nature. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I wish I was making more money. Uh, I love, but thing is that I. I love what I do. I would not yeah, I mean, trade it for anything else in the world. I mean, I, yeah. I'm really, really lucky that that I have this opportunity to do this. And 
you know, if I had to do it all over again, I do it all over again. I have no regrets. Yeah, I remember years ago when, when I was first started teaching here in Korea, and then I went to a university. I thought that I would come here. My whole plan was to go to Korea, maybe teach for a couple of years, and then go back to America and do a PhD. That was always my dream. But when I got here and the money was kind of good, I'm thinking, do I really want to suddenly take off time and do this? Now, as I look back, I probably should have done that. Okay, that would have been a good idea. One thing which I didn't bring up earlier is that this is it. I have two more years. I just signed my last contract. And so now at 60, at 64, I will be unemployed. And I'm, I'm scared. I'm really, at this point, I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I can't stay in Korea. I mean, because as soon as my contract is up, I lose visa. I lose everything. It's like one fell swoop. I'll lose medical. I'll use housing. That is, it's up on the horizon. It's not happening yet. I mean, I still have time. But when I first came here, you know, I never thought about that. I thought two or three years, but one day you wake up and you go, wow, I've been here 30 years because it became a, a career. This is something new. That's why I said earlier with, uh, when I was talking to that, I'm kind of old school or things of that nature, because there was a time when people would come here or people would go overseas that you did not have to have the teacher training, you did not have the background. And some people managed to stay a lot longer than maybe they wanted to. But at the same time, they stayed because they were taken care of. So, I mean, it was very lucrative at the time. It was really great. But like I said, these days, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I just don't know what's going to happen. So, Well, one of the things that I've also been really learning and, and again, thinking about how do we promote this in this industry is the that there really there is a career path there's more degrees there's more certifications how do we break break that perception for people who might want to start teaching or even those who are just starting that this is a really viable career there are options for what you can do with it and you really can make a career out of it and encouraging people to think about ESL like that well, if, uh, if I could make uh, offer some advice, I would say for anyone who's going to get into the profession or wants to do this, they should seriously think about getting a degree, uh, at least some certificate down the road yeah. that would be not only insurance, but also kind of give them maybe opening more uh, opportunities for them. What, what I did, what I've done, I'm going to probably be one of the last ones to be able to do this. Yeah, yeah. This, so I'm, I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> you know, uh, there, there won't be any opportunities like this. I mean, there might be for some teachers, uh, but I think it's going to be more and more difficult. And I think in light of the pandemic and in light of a lot of schools suffering financially, they're going to be looking very carefully at who they hire, the sort of the qualifications. Yeah. And which is good. I mean, you know, I mean, if that's what it takes to sort of legitimize the industry and make it credible so that people who are coming up into the system that they're not going to get screwed. Uh, I think that's, that's good for the industry. So my advice would be for anyone who's going to get into this business, you know, get your basic degrees, you know, get your degrees in English or linguistics. If, you, if there's a, a, a TESOL program, take it, then try to get into any kind of teacher certification and have that 
that's going to be the ammunition. That's going to be what's going to get teachers that edge when it, when it comes time for negotiating contracts. And, hey, wait a minute. I got this degree. In my case, experience is great, but now we see that that's not the case. I see so many teachers now with PhDs mm-hmm. teaching in English, uh, which I've never saw before. That's interesting. I, I remember back in, I think it was 95 or 96, Ewa Women's University published an ad in the New York Times looking for teachers. And they said they must have a PhD. And we all laughed. We, we were like, really? Somebody with a PhD is going to come to Korea and teach English for what, you know, we're kind of looking at it from what we were making at the time. Nobody, no PhD in their right mind would do that. Now, myself included, we're probably thinking, yeah, well, that was the writing on the wall. I, I work with teachers here that teaching English language, you know, English conversation classes, they got PhDs. They got TESOL degrees. They also have, you know, but they're in linguistics and other areas. So, I mean, now it's, it's like, you got to do a PhD. Well, I have so enjoyed meeting yes, you yes. and talking with you. Oh, it's been so wonderful. So Tell your dad, I said, hi. I mean, I will. I, will. Tell him, tell him I hope everything's okay with him. I mean, you know, <laughs> there, you know, there was, of course, there was your grandfather. Okay. And he, I remember you always coming over. He, really loved weird to visit. he loved to go visit people. And as a kid, he'd take me along. It was so great. I, and I, and I, you know, I remember that every summer there'd be like picnics and get togethers. I think I was just writing about it not long ago in my journal about how we used to do those things. I remember getting in my grandparents' car and we'd go around LaSalle in Peru and we'd go looking at all the Christmas decorations. You know, that was the big thing. Yeah, that was such a special memory. And I think for myself, because I haven't been back home in 14 years. Yeah. I, haven't, I haven't been back to the States in 14 years. And I don't know when now. I mean, I've, I've been trying to get back for several years. And because of the pandemic, you know, I don't think it's going to be this year. and ne- Definitely not this year. Next year, I don't know. So I've been kind of reminiscing a lot. I, I, I remember my grandparents, you know, when they were getting up in years, probably about my age, actually. And I remember they always just sit, sit around talking about this person and that person growing up and, oh, this person, and we did this. And I said, oh, grandma and grandpa, why are you talking that way? Well, now I'm doing it. Now, as you get, when you get older, you, you tend to do more of that. You, you look back on your life and you look back on your family, you know. And I, I honest, to be honest with you, I, I really miss everyone. I miss all those times so much because life was easier maybe it wasn't easy but to me as a kid younger, it, yeah. it would seem really easy and real everything seems special and and more magical there, there's one one story which uh which i'd like to share kind of before we leave today and uh, that happened in 1989 i was um i was, I was on my way to japan and i'd gone to chicago so i had to get a visa and then the next day i was flying down to texas where my mother was living at the time and then a couple of days later, I would fly to LA and then fly to Japan. So as I was flying from, from, uh, from Dallas to Chicago to catch my flight to, to LA, I used to see, I remember when I was living at my grandparents, uh, staying with them, that I often saw these planes flying overhead. And I had no idea that that was the flight path for landing at O'Hare. So as I'm coming up this day, and I'm, I'm on the left-hand side of the plane, I happen to look down and 
I saw the Illinois Valley. I saw Spring Valley. It's so beautiful. I saw Peru and I saw LaSalle and I go, wait a minute. And then I saw my grandparents' house. This is the landing pattern because you're about 90 miles away. And of course, this this is the final descent. That has stayed with me forever. The fact that I'm I'm leaving, I'm leaving America because you know that was 89. And although I've been back a few times, that's when I made this decision to, to, to change this life. Imagine if I had not looked out the window at that time, but it's just at that right precise time I was looking at seeing this was like this is my whole life. I felt this was like this is a new beginning, but I'm getting one chance to see where I've been, where I've come from. Well, thank you for sharing that with me. I think that's beautiful. I love well, it. You're welcome. Uh, again, tell your dad I said hi and good luck with this. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you so much, Amy. Okay, bye bye. Come on, baby. Let's keep in touch. Come on, baby. Let's keep in touch.